0: Welcome, everyone, to the Cup of Coffee podcast with me, your host, Tom Dillon. This has been recorded live at our weekly online meeting and broadcast around the world. Today's topic is how to get gain, sorry, how to get gain, how to gain from planning uplift with the lovely John B Corey, Jr. Uh, before we start, I just like to say by way of disclaimer, that today is a uh, wonderful discussion, but that nothing said here constitutes financial advice. You should always take professional advice before investing in your hard earned cash. There may be the odd unplanned swear word along the way as well. The format for today is that Sir John will speak to us for a while um, and then we'll be taking questions from the floor. Um, uh, in terms of John, John started his working career in the software industry and moved to Silicon Valley in 1982. He reported to Steve Jobs when working at Next, and then travelled. Transitioned to real estate. He has over thirty years of experience with creative finance, specifically in the real estate sector, and is a specialist in compliant capital raising for real estate transactions. His own property portfolio portfolio covers eleven time zones. Um, good morning, John.
1: Good morning. How are you?
0: Very well indeed. You want to say good morning? i mean, Good morning, don't
1: I? Yeah. Well, you know, the sun's not up yet. <laughs> <laughs>
0: George we're Spain doing this side, from the u.s yeah. Yeah. We're international yeah. exactly
1: but at least it's the east coast and not hawaii so it's only five time zones not 11
0: yeah right Well, uh, that would just be like a late evening they'd have having a few grass skirt and a, and a drink on yeah there. yeah actually it You're might better. be better
1: let's reschedule this i'll come back after i get to hawaii so.
0: yeah
1: actually i could change the virtual background and show you the property in hawaii but anyway <laughs> so um Tom and I were speaking about me talking about planning uplift. Uh, I've got a, a challenge, a, five, a four day challenge plus a bonus day starting Monday. So he said, oh, why don't you come on and you can talk about it. But I also want to sort of go wherever you want to go. So it doesn't have to be strictly planning. That's not really hard to cover. Uh, and to some degree, I'm going to say it's in the challenge. So attend the challenge. Uh, so use the, I guess the chat here, is that what you want us to use?
0: Yeah, absolutely. People can pop pop whatever they want in the chat. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I'm really happy with questions as we go. I don't like this questions at the end. Um, if you want, I have some slides that have almost nothing to do with planning. It has to do with general real estate investing. I've been doing it for a long time. So let me start out by telling you slightly my background. For those that don't know, I did speak to the group, but not necessarily to the individuals here. Oh, uh, probably three months ago, six months ago, something like that. So some of you will know me from that. And some of you will know me because I'm pseudo famous in the property circles for being one of the older guys still investing. Um, So started when I moved to Silicon Valley in 1982, um, degree in computer science, started working at Hewlett Packard. Uh, Funny enough, that's now the Apple site. The the HP uh, organization was building out that site while I was there. And now many years later, Apple's knocked it all down and put up their site and Steve Jobs' father worked at uh, HP, and then Steve's first job was at HP, and then I worked for Steve later when it was next, which then became Apple again. So it's a little incestuous in a sort of strange way. Um, Study AI while also worked at HP, and around 1983, I was reading a book uh, called Nothing Down by Robert Allen, and it was how to buy real estate with nothing down. So no deposit is the UK phrase for US phrases, nothing down. And it's like basically how to get wealthy with no money. Uh, you've seen some people maybe make takeoffs of the book in the UK. And so I took a weekend course. Oh, funny story. So I'm watching, I read this book and I remember I met my girlfriend's, so I'm sitting at the end of the bed, middle of the day, she was doing something downstairs. And I, some reason TV was on and there was a commercial, an infomercial, which Maybe I was naive, but anyway, I was listening too. And it talked about you could make money with real estate, nothing down. It's like, oh, I know that book. I've read that book. And I said, if you call now and register for the seminar at the Red Lion by the San Jose Airport, it's a hotel, um, we'll give you a free gift. Operators standing by. This is, by the way, long before there was a web more you would think it was before the internet, though technically that's not true. Uh, if you called now, you get a free cassette tape. You had to show up to get it, but a cassette tape, no less. I mean, this is 45 minutes aside. You know, these are like these mechanical things that have audio on them and you actually have to carry them around and you put them into machines and they spin the tape. So it's nothing like an iPod. And some of you are laughing because you know what it is and the rest of you are like, what the hell is this old guy talking about? So. I go to this thing and I'm sitting there and I've read the book and I liked the book. It was a good book. And he says, stuff. he says, you know, seven ways to buy da da da. And, and I said, okay, good. And he goes, and we're going to do three of them now. It's like, what about the other four? And then, then we get to like this five ways that you can close without cash or put cash back in your pocket. Let me cover two of those. And it's like, what about the other three? So I didn't understand how this works after two hours or so. There's this thing about, if you go to the back of the room now, you can take this course in the weekends, Saturday and Sunday. It's like, I've never been sold before like this. I've never been to a seminar before like this. Like, oh my God, how's this work? So sure enough, go to the back of the room. <clears throat> and the reason I remember when I took the course, I actually kept a copy of the imprint for the credit card transaction, Amex transaction. And like, this is the old days where they have to use a machine that goes back and forth to do a ink imprint where they're taking paper and they're compressing it against the card to actually get your credit card numbers. A lot of you don't even know what that is, but that's how we used to do credit card transactions. And there was no thing on the back or anything else. So I do the course Saturday and Sunday. Now, for me, this is a big deal. I'm a software engineer. I have a nice lifestyle. I live about 11 miles from work. I can ride my bike to work, But I know, and my boss knows, I don't get in before 10 a.m. I might stay quite late, but not, never before 10 a.m. I have to drive. 70 miles from San Jose or Montesorino up to San Francisco. I have to find the hotel. There's no such thing as Google Maps. The Google guys haven't created Google. There's not even university students yet. So I have to call the hotel, like where, where the hell are you? And you look it up on this paper map and you have to be able to read paper maps and you got to figure out parking. So I, I get it all done and I get, get there by eight or 8.30, whatever, when you start. And there's probably 15 of us in the room. Now they've been traveling around the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, promoting this. And there's 15 of us in the room. So you can tell how good their sales technique was, but they got me. So I do whatever I do and the guy's presenting. Now here's the funny part when he presents. So he's, he's sitting in the front of the room to present. He's sitting. He's got an overhead projector. That's this big bulky thing with a, a lens on top and the light comes up from the bottom and goes through the lens that projects behind him. And he's handwriting the slides. And then he turns the crank to move the acetate forward to get to the next clean section. And he writes the next slide in this blue marker that I remember. And if he makes a mistake, he spritz a little stuff on it, rubs it off and you see the big blur and smear and then he writes it correctly. And everything's hand drawn, but it's all making sense. So I was like, okay, yeah, well, Sunday afternoon, it's like, you know, I, I got this, I, I, I know what's going on. This makes sense. It's in the book, I'm comfortable with the numbers, I could do this. So I decide then I'm gonna go down to the real estate agent's office. And I'm pretty sure where I live is on the top of a small hill. And I know if I walk down about a mile to the bottom of the hill into Los Gatos, there's probably an estate agent or realtor's office there. Well, sure enough there was, cause I, was, I thought I had seen one and I walk in and the person who is uh, up, So you have the way it works, someone covers the walk-ins. And Monday morning is not when real estate agents work in the US. Monday morning's the cleanup. Good real estate agents in the US work nights and weekends. The newbies, the sort of low quality or the people who aren't that experienced are the ones that draw the worst straw, which is Monday morning. So I get this, I'll say old guy, probably because my age, but anyway. At that time, I was much younger. I was probably twenty-three or so, twenty-five, I think it was. So, I walk in, and he says, "How can I help you?" I say, "I want to look at some houses because I'm a real estate investor now. I've been to the seminar. I like, it. I know what I'm doing." So, I tell him what I'm interested in. He says, "You know, where do you work?" I said, "Da da da." So, I work at a good firm, get a good salary, all this other stuff. I've been working all of like you know a year, year and a half. And he says, okay, well, let me get out the book. Now, he's old school, so he's got a printed book, but and they come out once a week. But you could have done this on a computer even back then. It would have been quite slow, but you could have. So he says, okay, I've identified three properties. Would you like to go see them? So we jump in his car, and we drive around to the properties. And in the U.S., they have what's called a lockbox. So he has a key to lockbox that lets him into every one of these houses. So we see three houses. Third one, we're going in just as the painters are coming out. I happen to like it better, so I said, "Yeah, I like this one." And it was ninety-nine thousand five hundred, I think, was the price for a three-bedroom, two-car garage, detached house, two bathroom. Uh, how you'd say it? One was ensuite, one was not. And I see, he goes well. How about we go write it up? I say, yeah, sounds good." Remember, I've been to the seminar. I know how to do this. So we go back to his office, he pulls out the pre-printed forms, we fill in the blanks, I sign it, I drive into work. It's now probably two in the afternoon. I had to walk back up the hill, get the car, go into the office. It's like whatever. So he calls me at five o'clock, says, sellers accepted your offer. Now, for those that don't know, in the US, that means we exchanged. So I took the course Saturday and Sunday, and by five o'clock on Monday, I had exchanged enough for purchase. So now I'm buying myself a three-bedroom detached house. And it's like, well, we're going to have to see how we can finance this. So I figured between MasterCard, Grandma, and the bank, we'll get 100% financing, which is exactly how it worked out. Um, And I went from being a renter in a house, which you would now call an HMO, but it was more shared, a group of us sharing, um, to operating an HMO where I was the live-in landlord. And I put an ad in the newspaper. That's a printed thing that you have to put ads in. And people called up, and I interviewed them, and I picked two people, and I, so that's how I get started in property real estate investing as a Silicon Valley
2: software engineer. Any questions? You have to read the chat box, I guess. <laughs> no questions. Stunned
1: silence. By the way, you can take yourself off the mute and just yak at me too. Anything that anyone wants to say?
3: John, how do um? How does the finance work? Did you have a period to pay it off, or did you just basically fund it month by month on credit cards?
1: No, it was uh, so I did. There was three piles of money. So ninety-five percent was a traditional lender. Then there was, um, I think, a thousand, four thousand from grandma, and a thousand from Mastercard. So, John, was yeah, you so- that was
0: it? Oh, sorry, Anth. I was just going to ask whether it was a good purchase. That first
3: purchase was it a sen- was it a sensible purchase? Or
1: I was you- able to do it in a day, so that was good for me. So what I thought was this: why don't I start with something simple, something I understand? So I grew up in houses, so house made sense. Um, my father, and my grandfather, were quite good at doing sort of DIY, so I could do the basics. And I was living with four roommates in a basically a couple and other singles in a uh, four-bedroom house. So I was basically going to say, fine, I'll move to a different house and I'll get two roommates. I had just come out of university a year and a half earlier. I had spent my whole university career with lots of roommates. So having roommates around made sense. And I'll just get the better bedroom and then they'll pay me rent. And it worked out between the tax deductions because you can deduct your interest on your loan in the U.S. For your primary residence, you get to deduct all the interest that you're paying off your taxes and I was making decent money as an engineer. So suddenly it was actually gonna cost me less money to own the house than it was costing me to rent one bedroom in the house where I'd been renting between the tax deductions,
2: the income. Anything else. Um, Hi, John, it's Yogesh. How does the the exchange thing work? So as soon as you, you put your offer in you've exchanged so what if you can't get your mortgage or there's a title problem or you can't your searches are bad how does that work
1: well you haven't done that yet yeah that's correct you've done none of that yet so it's not like an auction where you're expected to have all that sorted before you even make your offer this is literally sight unseen i'm going to make an offer it hasn't been an inspection we don't exactly have searches we have title insurance for that and all the other conditions that Yogesh just highlighted. Think about it this way, and this is maybe an interesting transition to a bit later for planning. So I want to buy a property if I can get planning, and I'll pay the seller a premium price if I can get planning. I just need them to wait. I need them to hold off. I need them to, in a sense, finance the deal by holding the deal while I go get planning. Well, in this case, here I am making an offer to buy, and this is how it works across the US. You make the offer to buy subject to certain conditions, subject to you can get a loan secured on that property because then the lender has to do the appraisal, which is evaluation, subject to title being good. So there's no problems with the searches is the way the UK would say it. So you're making an offer subject to certain conditions. And the buyer and the seller have to agree what those conditions are. So I put in a bunch of conditions, the seller might say, well, I'm not gonna have that, but I'm happy with these other things. So you actually have, just like you do with subject to planning, it's a subject to offer. I will do this if you will do that. I will get married if you'll show up and say yes. Uh, I'll go on this holiday with you if you agree to go to the event that I wanna go to while we're on holiday. There's lots of things we do in life that are conditionals. And that's exactly how you do it when it comes to buying essentially a binding contract. So two-way contract we're both agreed to is literally both parties have signed without a lawyer. And it's a binding contract, but it has conditions. Some of the conditions favor the buyer, some of the conditions favor the seller. The buyer might say subject to the, the evaluation works out and the seller might say, you have to put up this much money by this date, or you have to have finished this application, or you have to have applied or sent out the value or by this date. So they want to know things are moving along. Are there
2: quick questions okay. on? So if, you, if you didn't get your lending, then you wouldn't have to buy that property that you talked about. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Unless yes, okay. you didn't
1: put that in as a condition.
3: So, how, can I ask you a question? You just did, but go I... for another one. How did you move on um, from that property? Did you refinance that property or did you use the same tactic again on your next one?
1: Uh, so actually the next one was a JV. I got someone else to come up with the money. We were able to secure a loan, but they put up the full deposit on the second one. So I kept that one.
3: And did you refinance it at any point and pull any money out or did you not need to because it just gave you cash flow? Uh,
1: that That one I never did refinance. I think I had it for... It was a number of years I got married, started having kids, and then eventually we moved to a different state. So I sold it, but I did a 1031 tax deferred exchange. So I was able to sell it, not recognize the capital gains in a way that caused capital taxes to be paid. I was able to sell it and then move that money to, I think it was three properties in another state. So there's a way in the US that you can sell real estate and buy one or more replacement properties and The central federal government, plus also the state government effectively defer the taxable uh, event.
3: Right. So in effect, you've not, it's almost like you've not sold it. You've just moved the the money over to the next property. Yeah.
1: You could go from like a house to a skyscraper to a parking lot. And assuming the numbers made sense for the, the certain conditions. But yes, you can keep deferring the gain. And then you can die and your estate gets it at the stepped up value. So effectively, all the capital gains is canceled. <laughs> yeah, it's a different market than the UK.
2: And,
1: and if anybody wants to invest in the UK or invest in the US and they know the other side, I could probably help translate. Because, yeah, it's very different in some respects.
0: Speaking of translating, I've got a quick question, um, and I'm aware he might be, he might well be listening. So uh, I say this with uh, with respect, um, which is I'm dealing with a starting to deal with an American chap who's as uh, a JV investor. And I realise in the same way, not all British people are the same, not all Americans are the same either. But my guess is there's some cultural stuff, you know, that's similar, um, and and as well, kind of, you know, speaking to you, there's obviously different languages, different words around real mm-hmm. estate property, uh, which you are very familiar with, having done dealt with it on both sides of the pond and elsewhere. But so uh, my question is then uh, with dealing with this chap um, uh, is there anything that you think american people are likely to be looking for out of a jv or, or way they're going to do business that that i should be aware of that might help me to to deal with this chap in a way that makes him feel good and comfortable
1: i would say you know as first principle get to know the person quite well and ask them those questions to see what they say
2: Because
1: yeah. no like trust you have to establish a relationship and understand well why they're there and it's very similar to marriage like why are we getting married what's the point and how how's this going to work and what about 30 years from now when my toe number six grows out of my left foot what are you going to say and all this sort of stuff. Um but there are definitely particularly I'd say Americans who haven't traveled a lot, which could be a lot. It's a big country you don't have to leave the country so you don't even know what a passport is sometimes mm. um They're gonna have their assumptions about how things work. In fact, one of the things they're gonna assume is you can get a second charge loan without asking the first charge lender because that's how it works in the US. First charge lender doesn't get a vote um, by definition. So what do you mean I can, I have to get the first charge lender to approve this? It's like, why do we even ask them? Um, interesting. The idea that when you make an offer and the seller accepts it as you're the buyer, then you've exchanged. We don't have sorcerers in the US. I'm not, not sure that they, they even think the word exists in the UK some days. We have buy side agents who are paid by the sell side um, and they actually understand they're working for the buyer. They're not just in the middle trying to ra- rape and pillage and collect the fee. Um, so their the fiduciary responsibility is a lot clearer. All agents in the US are licensed but they're licensed at the state level. So someone who's in one state can't operate in another state unless they have a second license. So there'll be all this sort of baggage that a U.S. investor might have, yeah. and you bump into shit. And the funny part is you think you know because, well, we both speak English, right? Yeah. So here's a funny one. My grandmother, if she wanted me to get over there and talk to her, she'd get your fanny over here so we can have a chat. And that's a very polite way for a grandmother to say, get your bum over here in the seat and sit down and let's talk. Because fanny doesn't mean front side, it means backside. um there's there are some other words that i mean in the us that wouldn't get a bleep because it's not a swear where in the uk everybody's you just use the fanny word it's like oh my god it's like what are you talking about i remember i stepped in front of a guy two days after arriving in london 1994 i stepped in front of a guy who was riding his bike because i was walking between some parked cars and didn't look correctly i looked left not right you wanker so i said have a great day (laughs) because i don't know what a wanker is (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, it doesn't exist. Yeah. We, we don't have uh, valuers. We have appraisers. Yeah. Uh, the, the estate in the US, real, realtors work nights and weekends. They have no base salary. They don't get a company car. They're buying their own car. They hustle. But the right. commissions maybe are 5% or higher mm. on a transaction. So,
0: divided, divided by common language.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, Exactly. So when we table something in the U.S., that means to defer it, take it off the table, where you put it on the table in Britain. Okay. I said to someone when they said, "Oh, that's like a TARDIS." I said, "What's a TARDIS?" They said, "From Doctor Who." I said, "Doctor what?" <laughs> and this was in a bank meeting. You know, it's like I don't know what you're talking
0: about. <laughs> yeah. I read a phrase the other day. Put put it on the never never, which I think means higher purchase. And I don't know if that's American or if I'm just you know dumb. It's not um, American. There you go. <laughs> so I don't even know. I don't even know British. So I'm going to struggle with this. But uh, there you go. So yeah, useful. Thanks, John. Appreciate
1: it. Yeah, it, it's uh, so that would be the big thing is the because it's the same language. If they, actually, if the two parties spoke a different language, you'd probably have a better time because then you notice pause and think, what did you just say? What does that mean? But when you think you know, because it sounds really close, and particularly when you think you know real estate, it's like in the US, we don't have flats. We have condos. Mm. Okay, you In the UK, you sort of don't have apartments. We have flats that are rented. But there's this idea in the US that a condo has been in planning. They call it zoning. But in zoning, it's designated to be a condo which means these are separately owned properties. There is no freeholder. There's a homeowners association. So everybody has a share of the freehold. By definition, there can never be a freeholder. We don't do leases where you're actually owning it. So the closest thing in the UK is common hold. Now, what that translates into, though, is when a company or a person buys an apartment building, it is zoned in planning to be an apartment building, which means it can never be used as individually owned owner-occupied units. It has to be one block, one title, multiple streams of income. So there's no premium you get for converting it into owner-occupied because you can't. You'd have to go get a planning change and it's unlikely they'll give you one. So that's called uh, was condoization, but you don't see it as often. It does sometimes happen. So I would say there's a missing asset class in the UK the closest thing the UK has to this is student blocks. But think of all rental apartments in the US, most of them being owned by an entity that owns the whole complex or the whole tower or the whole area. And they buy and sell at commercial prices, Cash flow. Colin knows all about income valuations versus bricks and mortar valuations. We also don't say bricks and mortar. We'd say um, comparable valuation. So, lots and lots of translation issues. But so, when Yogesh was saying, So, how do you make this binding offer, legally two sided commitment? And I said, Subject to. Well, that's what you can do with planning. Let me transition to planning a little. <clears throat> planning is essentially saying, I see something in the future that isn't there now, and I'm going to try to get permission to do it. And I'm fundamentally generally saying, unless there's PD permitted development, but normal planning is all about, I have A and I want B, and I have to get someone's permission, the local planning officer, the planning department, the local council to sign off that we're gonna change the designation. We're gonna change the use of the property. That might mean it's a one story building and we're gonna add two more floors. We're gonna go up. We're gonna go from commercial to residential. Are we gonna go from residential to commercial? Or are we are gonna go from uh, a certain type of commercial use to a different type of commercial use? Or it's in an Article 4 area, we're gonna to have to get permission to run an HMO there because it doesn't exist as an HMO. We're not even changing the structure, we're gonna change how it's used. And because it's Article 4, they restrict that. So I have to seek permission. So planning can make a dramatic difference in the value. And most people who are in development avoid sites that don't already have planning. They look for a PD, they look for a planning permission that already exists, and that's what they then buy. Well, who are the people that go and get planning? And that's what I like to do these days is to find opportunities where you can change the planning permission. And I'm even more passive than that. Call it—you could say I'm an angel investor, which is code for older, it doesn't want to do the heavy lifting. Um, has a bit of money. This is Silicon Valley. You've been in a startup, you've done made some money. Now you want to be in the game, but you don't want to do the hard work. So you fund other people, okay? You want to make your cash work for you, but at the same time, it's, you're buying an entrance to the game. You want to have fun, but at five o'clock when it's wine o'clock, you want to get out the wine. You don't want to have to be working till midnight or till midday the next day. That's for the younger people who are more interested in trying to get wealthy and work hard and the older people with a bit of cash will splash the cash around. So you can do this with planning permission. You can fund other people who are interested in seeking planning permission. So they would run the project. You're putting up the cash is how I, or I would put up the cash thing. Now, what's really funny and I I find this sort of fascinating is the architects slash planning consultants, particularly more the architects, they're artists. They do it for the arts. They don't want to be wealthy. That would be bad. That would, good art can never be wealthy, right? You know, an artist has to be poor. It's part of the culture. So they'd rather work for wages than do it for themselves. So I effectively approached them and say, hey, how would you like to be your own client? Oh no, I couldn't do that because I wouldn't be able to get paid. I said, tell you what, I'll pay you. They said, well, okay, that might work. So if they're actually any good at getting planning permission they might be worth backing on a project they'll do all the grunt work they'll do all the hard work they'll want the wages and you say great have the wages and then everything left goes to someone else
2: so questions on that before i dive into any deeper
0: you got a you got a question from Arvinda in the in the chat well and uh, and well and made a comment
1: okay so this is about overage rights on planning uplift. So planning uplift, to technically define it, is the increased value that you achieve from obtaining planning. Um, some people use the phrase planning gain. I was taught a few years back by a, a professional in the field that planning gain is the benefit the council receives for your hard work, where planning uplift is the profit or, or what you receive for doing the hard work. So. Colloquially, we use the two phrases in the same way, but the people who are in the field know that if you know, you, if you say planning uplift, they think you know what you're talking, <clears throat> talking
2: about, if you say planning gain, then you're one of these people who went to a weekend seminar. So back to the question. <clears throat> um, actually, let me defer the question slightly because
1: I want to see if people know what I've just said, and then I'll talk to you about some really amazing numbers, which gets to Avinda's question. So anything else on the general principle of finding projects, finding consultants, advisors, paying them for the work, so that then planning applications can go in, the council can do their blessing, all that rest of it. Yogesh, any question?
3: I've got a question. Uh, Do you do you use a uh, like a planning consultant to let you know what you could possibly uh, put on in the area, or
1: do you do all that kind of work yourself? Because you know, I me do work. Are you kidding? (laughs) The the money's not in the work. No. Um, So, and the other way to say it. Now, uh, this is book who not how. Right. The book's all about finding who's that know what they're doing rather than you trying to figure out how to do it. Because even if you did figure it out, then you'd have to do it. Where if you could find people know how to do it, it works better. And in this in particular, so planning consultants, architects that have planning experience, and all the rest, they may have five, 10, 15 years of training, education, development, experience in the market. I'm not interested in spending 15 years getting to where they already are. And most of them will work for normal wages. So it's like, okay, I can rent you for a certain period of time for one project. I get all the benefit of all your collective wisdom, experience, track record, who you know, your black book, all the rest of it. Or I could go spend 15 years trying to get to where we already are if I just learn how to pay for your time. So I'd rather rent them. Same with like a mortgage broker, insurance broker, and all the rest. Why do these things when it's cheaper to just hire someone to do them?
3: Yeah. Another question. So, uh, another question. Um, when, when you're finding properties like that, do you try to get to speak to the owner of the property? Because obviously, if you're going through an agent, an agent might not be able to explain exactly what you want to say to the seller on
1: how you want to buy it with a delayed completion. Yeah. So let me slightly sidestep that question because I tend to be even worse than that. I tend to not. I tend to let someone else go do all that. So I, I find someone else to do that part. So I just sort of put the structure together and come up with the money. Um, But if you think about it, yeah, you probably do need to talk directly to the seller. If you're the person negotiating the deal, because you need to understand where their heads are, what their motivation is. You're probably going to ask them, like, can you wait maybe a year for the cash? And why would they do that? I'll give you more cash than you're ever going to get now. Oh, okay, maybe I'm willing to wait. You know, If they're getting divorced, maybe they can't wait. If they have cancer and die in six months, they probably really can't wait. If they're looking to retire and an extra chunk of money in their retirement pot would help, and they're sort of planning a little bit ahead, so it's a year or two before they were planning on retiring, waiting six to 12 months might be really advantageous for them. Uh, Possibly they People who are selling, they, they probably know that they have a site that they could do something with. They, the best candidate would be, I know it's worth a lot more if it had planning, but I also know I don't have the money. So I can see the pot of gold, but I don't have a bridge to cross the river. You want to build the bridge and you're not going to charge me to build it. I just have to wait till you build it. So then we could go across together holding hands and get to the pot of gold. Where do I sign? So it, it's a situational thing. And normally people with property that could have planning permission have some inkling of it. So they know there's a possible future value greater than the present value. If they want you to pay now for what it would be worth then, there's smoke and dope and you need to, to like either reset their thinking or say, thank you, I'll wait. Why don't you let the other idiot buy it from you? And then that way I have less competition.
2: Mm.
3: So, so you, you will take the properties that already have planning would you try and restructure that planning or would you go with the original plan? I suppose uh,
1: well, the numbers, uh, I so a funny way to answer your question is the opportunity might be to restructure or maybe the plans are perfectly valid and there's no real extra uplift. If you change the plans, um, I'm not interested in building out stuff that's risky. That's expensive. That requires loans. That people fall down and hurt themselves. They cut their finger and sue you for their life savings. You know, they like why get in that shit? That's lower margin business. That's for real men that do real work that don't get paid well. I'm not going to be one of those.
3: So you don't necessarily want to like build extensions on properties. You'll
1: just reconfigure what you've already got. Is that what you mean? No, I mean I'll do it on paper and let you build it out. You can tie yourself up and building sites with mud and and I can sit by the beach or something. In fact, why don't we do that? Why don't we just move to the outside beach now? So (laughs) this is where, this is the Florida background, sorry, Hawaii background. I don't go to Florida, I go to Hawaii. This is actually from the property in Hawaii. And this is what the sunset would look like. So I'd rather be sitting here talking about a deal than mucking around in the mud in British weather. So how do you do paper transactions and make the profits? Because yeah. you know, possibly I want to do some paddle boarding, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and by the way, this is the view from the London property. So
2: nice.
1: Um, I watched the shard getting built. So now let's go back to planning. So what I'd like to, to sort of jump way ahead, I like to be the guy who looks at the deals that are brought to me by all of you finding deals. And then I figure out how we're gonna get all the planning covered and i let you run the deal and you better know what you're doing. Um, and then if you don't, that just means your team has to. So almost by definition, you probably don't, fine. <laughs> we'll rent the people who do and you won't have to pay for them. So go hire the best. Now, how does the profit split work? Some recent deals I've done, the. People like you with the deal, if the deal goes exactly as planned, you'll make 97% of the
2: profit. And the people putting up all the cash will make 3%. Now, that sounds terrible, right? What if I said to you, I have a deal and you could earn 50% on your money? So, well, that's pretty good. It's the same deal. So the passive investors who fund the deal make 50% on their money.
1: Fully disclose that if the deal goes well, not only will they be paid the 50% and 50% first, and that's 50% on their money, not of the profit. The bulk of the profit will sit with the person running the deal. And because the artistes, the planning consultants
2: like to do their art, they get paid outrageously high day wages, And they'll walk away with five or eight grand or 10 grand and you'll make 300,000. And they'll think they did a good job and you'll pat
1: them on the back and maybe give them a bottle of wine or a cookie and say, well done you. If I have another job, I'll come see you. And the investors say, oh, that was so good. I got 50% of my money. Can you just get another job done, Keith? Because like, you know, we got all this cash sitting here growing mold. It's sitting in the account at 1%. Can you just find us another deal? It's, oh, I twist my arm. Maybe I'll find one. Okay. And then it's like, oh, now do you want to do the build-out phase where the profit margin is slightly lower? It's messier. You have to sign a PG, a big gas loan. You have builders who fall and die. You have COVID. You have supply chain problems. Or you could just do another paper exercise and make another 100 grand, 300 grand, 500 grand and not have any of those people and don't sign for any loans.
3: So do you share your contact details?
1: Oh, I arrange the the funding and you'll get a list of the
2: investors. All right, okay. Now,
1: to let the cat out of the bag, this is what crowdfunding does. And I'm not talking about crowd property because they can't do this. And I don't even care to own the platform. As a tech guy, it's like, I, don't want, I want
2: nothing to do with a crowdfunding platform. But I want to focus on planning. That's what the juicy margin is. First slice of the pie, you get half. The person who does all the mucky part gets maybe half again, maybe, if they have a good build team. We turn it around six to 12 months, maybe 18 months, and then let's do it again.
1: So planning is taking something that you see like the shard. There was a 22 story uh, office building on that site. Oh, by the way, this developer, that was their first project. The build company had never been the prime contractor in a build before for this site, the mace. They had never actually been the prime general contractor
2: before. They had years and years and years experience as a project manager, but this was their first build. So they brought people in from around the world that could run cranes at high levels and all the rest. The
1: top, I think it's 16 stories, the bit that doesn't have any usable space. It's just steel scaffolding. That was all assembled in Yorkshire after being built there and then disassembled and trucked down and lifted in 10 ton sections. And they needed six days of good weather
2: consecutive days with guys hanging on a rope and having wrenches on a rope to tighten it up 300 meters in the air. When they did the foundation work, the train station's open.
1: The underground station is below it, and they're using explosives to break
2: up the existing concrete as I'm walking on the overpass. Is this...
1: is there a minimum, hey. is there a minimum that you invest in? So the minimum, the smallest raise, were, the smallest raise we've ever done for planning is 15,000, one five. largest one was 155. They reached 130. Um, so they had essentially the way we structured, there was a minimum that they needed to make the project work. And then there's a maximum that they like, which would include some discretionary things, including appeal. So they ended up, I think cashed, funded was 111. I'm one of the investors. I think there's 57 investors in that deal. Right. And I put that together. And one of the great things about it, is it doesn't matter where I am. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. It can all be done this way. So it plays to my original roots in Silicon Valley. Cool.
0: We've only got about five-ish minutes to go, John. Did you want to um? Did you want to tell us uh, about the? I know you got a program coming up next week. Now be a good time to talk about that. So, do you want to take good some questions? You're here.
1: Otherwise, I could just keep talking. Good point.
0: <laughs> That's another option.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but I should at least leave the link. So. I'm running what's called a challenge. It's basically a quick overview of planning. It's over four days, an hour, well, 45 minutes to an hour a day. I'll put it in the chat. And it's essentially explaining how planning works um, in a high level, what the role is. If you think about the life cycle of a piece of property, piece of real estate, as in the dirt. So a thousand years ago, there was a crow magnet man or something walking across it. Well, anyway, so we're talking about this transition and planning so that the front end you may be taking existing structure, brownfield site, or maybe it's a greenfield site, or whatever, but you're going to get permission to do something. Then someone's going to do it to the site, then it's going to cash flow afterwards. This is that phase of the paperwork and creating value out of thin air. Could be air rights and a bunch of other things. So, in the four days, we're going to cover some of the basics. We're going to deconstruct some planning deals that have already been funded so you can actually see what the team was what the uh, shareholders uh, structure is, the offers, how people have invested, what the, how the breakdown works between the people raising the money and the people that uh, put in the money, why we price things the way we price them, how the profit is projected. Uh, If you think about a buffet, you're having a family gathering, you're having a bunch of friends and family over and you're putting on the buffet, you lay out all the food. Now, when the guests come, You don't throw elbows and punch them out and run to the table and shove your face in and fill your plate up and then say to your guests, okay, now that I've eaten what I want, you can have yours. That's not how it works. Well, the same here. I teach people, it's like, well, if you're going to raise money to do this, let the investors win first, let them get their share out first, and then everything that's left is yours. And that's why it could be 95%, 97% of the profit is yours after they've gotten their fill. Because once they're full, they don't want anymore. So how to do all that? We cover that in the four days and it's an overview. It's not meant to be like all the things you need to know about planning 15 years worth of experience crammed in four hours. It's never gonna happen. It's more so as a real estate investor, what you need to look for, how to then bring a deal forward, discuss it, how to possibly get it funded. If you do get it funded then what you need to do, how to communicate with the investors, and how to exit, so they all say, hey, can we do another one? That was great, this is wonderful. I got a SIP, I got a SASS, I got all this money. Could you just do more deals? And it's sort of funny, the number of builder types. It's like, oh, I only ever buy stuff for planning. It's like, hey, great, I'll find you those and you can then buy them from me. And then you don't have to worry about trades. You don't have to worry about people having nightmares because the joiner didn't show up or the chippy or the sparky and all the rest of those things of the
2: utility company. All that crap that comes with building it out. That's not your problem. You're already on to the next deal. You either exit, by the way, I'll give you the little clear message. You either exit through a sale
1: with planning, so you get that uplift, or you exit, the investors at least exit by when you secure a loan to build it out. If you did want to go that route and call and arrange a loan and The lender says, fine, here, if we're doing the first tranche, the first drawdown, that's when the passive investors would all exit. So they've created the equity you need to qualify to do the build phase. They create that margin so the loan makes sense by the planning side. They funded that. And if you don't get planning, you screw it up, they lose 100% of their money. No personal guarantees, no loans,
2: no risk other than you're a bit of a bozo because you lost my money. Cool. Thanks, John.
0: We'll uh, post the link, obviously, with, for those listening to the podcast with the podcast with, uh, with John's permission. So if you're interested, uh, feel free to click on that. Uh, is Yogesh uh, is signed up already in his usual fashion. He doesn't hang about. Yeah,
1: that URL will ask actually work in the podcast too. So if you're listening to this a little delayed and we've already run the program, um, that, that'll redirect us something. So if we run it again, you'll get notified. So yeah, at least that way for those that listen to the podcast, it's not stale information.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Avinder, just because I want to cover make sure we've got questions covered um, uh, Avinder asks, do you usually offer holding costs to the landowner whilst obtaining planning? I guess that depends on the deal doesn't it? So
1: I would say no um, I would say the owner look, you have a property that's worth X today and maybe 2X tomorrow if you want part of that 2X, you're just going to have to put up property. If you want to get planning on your own, go for it Pay for the costs, find your consultants, do whatever you need to do, go, go, go. And oh, by the way, you're not going to get anyone to pay your holding costs while you do that, anyways. So if you want me to pay all your planning costs, you need to like just sit tight, keep your mouth shut, and do what you say, you know, do what you're told to say. Um, But there's, they're buying into the dream, they're buying into the future uplift. They're not, you're not paying them for that. If they don't have the vision, then Move on to the next one.
0: Well, there we go. Um, uh, well, thank you all. Um, thank you, John. Did you want to do, you all right to um, to call it there? Or do you have any? Yeah, uh, that's
1: fine. And uh, but there is one other question. So the session that I'm running the challenge, it is not recorded. It'll be on Zoom, but it won't be recorded for distribution. Everybody, I might record it so I learn to do it better, that sort of thing. But you know, <laughs> whatever they say that you know this could be used for development or something HR. Reasons. Um, so yeah, you. It's meant to be a live, hands-on. Let's interact. It doesn't. It's sort of like a cuppa that if you don't show up, you're not going to get the benefit.
0: Yeah, right. Um, well, thank you very much, uh, John. Thanks for taking all the questions. Um, thank you, everyone, for attending, and for those listening to the podcast as well. And of course, as I say, a special thanks to uh, John B. Corey Jr. Um, uh, tune in next week um, I've, I've, I've forgotten I haven't got it to hand who we've got speaking on but I'm sure it'll be somebody exciting uh, and, um, uh, and I hope to see you there